0: Well, as I said at the beginning of the service, we're going to pull out of our study of the lives of Elijah and Elisha just uh, for this week uh, so that we can take advantage of what I know many of our attentions were focused upon this past week, all things red and pink and lacy and chocolatey and all such. Um, So if you have your Bible now, I'd encourage you to turn now to the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, and I'll explain why we're looking there uh, here in just a minute, but just for a minute, if you could go ahead and start looking there. uh, it's Other than Genesis, I would say it's probably the easiest book in the Scriptures to find, given it's the the last and the final in the New Testament. As you're turning there, let me uh, uh, tell you a little story. I, I remember the day it hit me. It was quite vivid. The day I realized that things are are really messed up wherever you look. I knew that. I'd been to seminary. I got it up here. Penny dropped. I got it. I really got it. Things are really messed up wherever you look. The context was rather odd. Uh, The the church officers, we were on a retreat uh, some years ago. We were sitting around the breakfast table just kind of catching up, hanging out, getting to know each other better. This was a few years ago. Um, One man began to open up about the problems that he was experiencing with his parents. Another began to share his struggles with his siblings. Another began to share the problems, the issues with his in-laws. Another began to share his concern for his kids. And halfway through one of my sips of coffee, there at that breakfast table, around with these dear, dear men, opening up their lives and their hearts to one another, it hit me. We are every one of us crooked people living in a broken world, all engaged, enmeshed, and screwed up relationships. And no one of us is immune. And there's nowhere to go to be insulated from it. Come, Lord Jesus. That's what we need. And that's where we have to go. So, that's where we're going. Revelation 19, and we're going to look in particular at verses 6 through 10. Now, I'm going to back it up to verse one not really going to talk about much of what uh, precedes verses 6 through 10, but it does kind of give you a sense of the flow of the visions here that uh, John is relaying to us. So, again, verses 6 through 10 uh, of Revelation 19 is where we're going to focus on, but I'm going to start in verse 1. smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen, Alleluia. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you His servants, you who fear Him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Alleluia! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Prophecy. Would you pray with me? How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding according to Your Word. With my whole heart I seek You. Let me not wander from Your commandments. I have stored up Your Word in my heart that I might not sin against You. Blessed are You, O Lord. Teach me Your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Lord, thank you. Thank you for this time that we have here at the start of this week at the first of the day. And we ask that you would bring all these truths to bear upon us such that it sets the tone for these days ahead. Indeed, even as we would reflect on the week behind, give us the right grid, the right filter, the right understanding, a true understanding, of what's preceding. Oh, and then set our footing set our footing for to run the race that is ahead. In your name we pray. Amen. Uh, here's my thesis. I don't usually just come right out and say it, but today I'm going to make an exception. Here's my thesis. The love of God for us in Christ enables us to love one another. It's Not that complicated. We make it complicated but the thesis is not that hard to figure out. The love of God for us in Christ enables us to truly, truly love one another. Now, let me unpack that, if I may. I'm going to give you what may at first seem like a very strange example. Some of you have seen the animated film, Despicable Me. And uh, the he's part villain, part antagonist, part hero, protagonist, this goofy little guy named Gru. Now, Gru's great ambition is to become the world's premier supervillain. But how do you, how do you, Gru, in essence, is, is wrestling with this question, how do you vault yourself over all of your competitors? Well, you shoot the moon. And if you can't shoot the moon, you shrink it down to manageable size And you steal it, and you put it on a shelf somewhere. And that's Gru's ingenious, nefarious plan. to Become the premier world supervillain. Well, it starts off okay, but as the more he gets into his little plot and his plan and the bullet points of it, the more complicated it gets, because he brings into the plan and into the bullet points these three little girls these cookie-selling orphans that he decides to adopt and then send them to the lair of his chief rival to steal this component that will then help him run the plan. The problem is, is that these three little girls prove to be nowhere near as pliable and as cooperative as he thought they would be. That's problem one. Problem two is this, and it's even worse if you're a supervillain as evil to the core as he wants to believe himself to be, he starts to care for them. You see, it's hard to be a supervillain when you feel, when you love. And love has a way of transforming the heart, enabling, empowering, compelling a response of love to others most especially when we're talking about the love of God in Christ for us, and that love's transforming power to transform our own ability to love one another. Uh, that takes us now, as I'm unpacking this and taking you through the introduction here, to what is really the root of our struggles, the root of our relational struggles. So, take notes. Here you go. I'm about to give you some free tips, okay? And you don't need to go to your therapist. You don't need to talk to your counselor about this because I'm saving you a ton of money right now, okay? The root of our relational struggles has to do with this and a lot of other struggles too, come to think of it. God has made us for a relationship. He has hardwired us for that. So, those are good desires. To want to be in friendship, to want to be in relationship, to want to be with other people, and all that that entails, that's good. it has been It's a good, God-given desire. The problem is, is when that desire becomes too great. When it becomes greater, and begins to dominate, and becomes out of place, and things get out of order and out of sync, which means to correct all that, you've got to get things back in order, back in place, back in sync, those desires back in line. But how do you do that? Right? Reasonable question. How do you do that? By coming to know that you are loved. And I don't just mean like, you know, on the horizontal plane. That's great. But I'm talking at this point about coming to know and really know that you are loved by God himself in Christ. And that, as you embrace that, as you experience that, as you sink the roots of your life into that and live out of that, will enable and impel you and compel you to love other people and truly love other people. I mean, I would go so far as to say this. The degree to which you get the love of God through Jesus for you is the degree to which you will truly be able to love other people. They are directly connected. Now, you may be thinking, okay, fine, but what does that have to do with Revelation 19 and the marriage supper of the Lamb? And I will be the first to admit, there are other things that you could talk about related to that and applications and implications from that, but I will also emphatically say that some of the things that you see reflected in this text speak to this transforming love of Jesus. A love that transforms us. Put it this way, for things to be and to become right with one another, we need to know the sovereign love of Jesus for us, this transforming love that we see here, and we see it in three ways. And it's there in your outline, and we're going to unpack this one by one. First, how do we see this transforming love? How do we see it? We see it, one, in the sovereignty of the king. Two, we see it in the wedding of the lamb. And three, we see it in the beauty of the bride. You look at those three things and you begin to see and understand, my God, this is a transforming love. Let's take a look at it. First one, the sovereignty of the king. Put another way. I'm trying to get at a question. A question that needs to be wrestled with. Does he know what he's doing? Can I trust him? Can I entrust myself to him? Not a bad question to ask. Let's listen, listen in again, to what this thunderous multitude in heaven is trying to get across to us as we're listening in. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Alleluia! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Now, there's a royal title being spoken of here. I'll explain that in just a minute. There's also a command. Alleluia is actually a command. It's an imperative. Praise the Lord. It's not a suggestion. It's not just a statement, it's not a chorus, you know, you just tag in there because it rhymes with something in a song. It's a it's it's something you see again and again and again through the Psalms, a command to praise the Lord, it's a call to worship that we see again and again through the scriptures in the temple, earthly and heavenly. Praise the Lord. Why? Because of who he is. Because again and again and again we see through the scriptures who he is what he has done his power his might his majesty his mercy his compassion his love his faithfulness as demonstrated in creation in all his mighty acts of deliverance and now here in revelation the end times the final day and this plan of his being unfolded now why though you may be wondering why though is this a part of this book why why is it so why is that coming out so clearly again and again and again, like a refrain in the book of Revelation? Hallelujah! And this title, this royal regal title, The Lord Our God, the Almighty Reigns. Because what takes us back to the, perp- the very purpose of the book, this book, the book of Revelation, its immediate first audience in the latter part of the first century was written to churches in the first century Asia Minor, Turkey, what we know of today. And the reason it was being written to them is because they needed to be strengthened. They needed to be fortified. They needed to be built up. They were living in the days of the persecution and the reign of Emperor Diocletian. And Emperor Diocletian had taken to himself titles almost exactly like what you see in Revelation 19.6. He's saying, I am the Lord your God. I am the Almighty who reigns. Worship, serve me. And the early church needed to have impressed upon their hearts and their minds and to live out of this that that was folly. No matter what it looked like, no matter what it cost, they were not to worship Diocletian or anything else on earth, but the one true living God, the cosmic king who reigns. And to put confidence and hope and look for help in anyone else is foolishness and boasting. And it's going to crumble and fall utterly flat. As an example, some of you are familiar with, uh, and if you're not, you ought to be, with the uh, United States Women's National Soccer Team. They just played in Nashville this past week. Some of you know that they won Olympic gold last summer. They're on the fast track to take the World Cup in uh, 2015, so root for them, you should. Um, Much has been rightly said and, and written up about this team and the skill and the speed and the power that, that the, this, this group of women has. But I will tell you, as a guy, I know how men think when they think about a women's soccer team. And this is what the instinctive, broken response is. When I, I don't doubt many of you just felt this way when I tried to lift them up. They're just a bunch of girls. Oh, my gracious. If you could see them play, let me assure you, they would kick your tail. And that is utter folly. It is utter folly to boast in such a way before such prowess on that. field. Now that little illustration just pales in comparison to what I'm trying to say in terms of what this king is doing and the foolishness of all other boasting before him. And all, all looking to any other help, any other help. Now this is, what's the, the, this crowd, this multitude uh, in, in the heavens are speaking of here, it's the best of news, what they're announcing, what they're trumpeting here. On the one hand, yes, he has been reigning throughout history. There's never been a moment when the king has not been on his throne. But what they're getting at here is a moment, is, a day is coming. A day is coming when his reign, his rule, is going to come fully and finally, completely. And there will be no rebelling, and there will be no resisting, because all is going to be made new, and the king will be on his throne fully and completely. And that day is coming. We're speaking here of the sovereignty of the king. what does that have to do with the relationships, though? How, how does it have any transformative effect upon how you relate to me and I relate to you and we relate to each other? Let me give you an example. Right? Just, just one pointed one. Between parents and children. There are no accidents. Nothing, there's no, I know it's a common, it's a common uh, phrase, oh, that's just so random. There's nothing that's random. There are no random accidents in this world, in this universe. It all happens according to the king's purpose and plans. So, parents, those of you who are honest, will acknowledge that you have had days in which you have cried out, if not aloud, at least to yourself, probably to the heavens, Lord, why? Why did you... I can't model anything for these children except the worst. I don't know what to teach them. I don't know how to teach them. I am a failure. Why? You need to know He didn't put you as either the mother or the father in that house by accident. He has tailor-made all of this with you and them in mind. Don't you forget that. That's a lie from the pit of hell. It would have you believe anything other. Children, you've got something here too. Because sometimes you can hit the wall and the thought will cross your mind. Lord, why? Why do you have me in this family? I I why why don't I get to do this? And why don't I get to do that? And why am I stuck here? You're not stuck. You've been placed by a king who knows what he's doing and is knit you into a family and puts you there for his good purposes and plans. Do you see? The sovereignty of the king. You get that. You begin to grasp that, and it can begin to mend. It can then begin to, to mold and, and, and remake our relationships just there and expand that out to all of our interactions. Okay, next thing, the next point. The, not just the sovereignty of the king we see here, but the marriage of the lamb. Another question, things to be asked. How does he feel about us, though? I get he's put me there, but how does he he feel? Verses 6 and 7. Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Who is this Lamb that uh, is being spoken of here in chapter 19? Keep your thumb there in 19. Let's go back a few chapters in Revelation 5 because he comes up before this, and it becomes very clear if you don't have guessed who he is already, it becomes very clear in the earlier chapters of Revelation who this is. Uh, we're going to start in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Explain what it says, its meaning, and just well, I'll explain it before I read it. John's going to speak of the the um, breaking of seals and the opening of a scroll, and what that has to do with is. Uh, someone who will grasp, understand, comprehend, and also be able to instigate and carry out God's plan. Okay, And who can do it? That's the question. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? That's the great question at this point in the course of the visions of Revelation. And John, because there's a a silent period of some length, John, nobody, rises up to do this, and he begins to weep. Well, in verse 5 we read, And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. So who is this that can open them? This conquering king, this lion, this mighty figure, this mighty warrior. But when you keep reading, you come to find out the characterization of this person is a whole lot more complex and nuanced than just a mighty warrior. Because when you read the next verse, it says this, For Verse 6, and between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. And then you keep reading on down to verse 9, and they sang a new song, Worthy are you. Now they're talking to the lamb, singing of the lamb. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and you've made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Who is this? This lion who is a lamb. This lion who's this conquering, this mightiest warrior, whose conquest, whose victory comes about through his own sacrificial death for a multitude of his own. Who is this if you haven't figured it out already? In John's Gospel, chapter one. He chronicles how John the Baptist, as he's there amidst his followers, looks and sees Jesus of Nazareth walking towards him. And he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is Jesus that we're reading of here in Revelation 19. And the richness of the imagery, that alone is worth camping out on. That alone is, is worth our spending a great deal of time considering, "My gracious, this lion, he is the lamb, this lamb, he is a lion. It's somehow how? Well, we need to go further, because it's not just it's not just enough to stay there with who he is, but how he has bound himself to us. We're talking about a marriage, which is a description of the groom at a wedding. This figure, this lamb. This bond that is every bit as as, as dear and wondrous as any other wedding vows that could be taken here in this room to have and to hold for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and the cherish. But in this case, without being separated like that. Because there's no separation. Now, that's extraordinary when you consider that this groom is willing to pledge himself in that way to this bride. Well, we know that the bride. Spend some time this week. Go back and read Revelation chapters 2 through 3. but Just the letters to the seven churches. And don't just camp out and get your head blown up about all the commendations and the compliments but the rebukes. That's the bride. And that's what she brings to the altar in this wedding. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? That's what we're getting at here. When you put all of this together, who this groom is, the type of bond that we're talking about, and who the bride is. It's extraordinary. Um, Years ago, I came across this story by Walter Burghardt, and he tells the story of of a surgeon's observations of a couple. Some of you may have heard this before. I'm going to read it to you. I stand by the bed where a young woman lies, her face post-operative, her mouth twisted in palsy, somewhat clownish. A tiny twig of the facial nerve, the one to the muscles of her mouth, had been severed. She will be this way from now on. I had followed with religious fervor the curve of her flesh. Nevertheless, to remove the tumor in her cheek, I had to cut the little nerve. Her young husband is in the room. He stands on the opposite side of the bed, and together they seem to dwell in the evening lamplight, isolated from me. The moment is a private one. Who are they? I ask myself. He and this wry mouth I have made who gaze at each other so generously, so lovingly, the young woman speaks. Will my mouth always be like this? She asks. Yes, I say it will, because the nerve was cut. She nods and is silent. But the young man's. I like it, he says. It's kind of cute. All at once, I know who he is. I understand and I lower my gaze. One is not bold in an encounter with a God moment. Unmindful, he bends to kiss her crooked mouth. And I am so close, I can see how he twists his own lips to accommodate to hers, to show her that their kiss still works. You understand that this is exactly what Jesus does for us. He stoops down. He gets low. He contorts himself to love a people disfigured, not by a scalpel, but by their own sin. And to love them well. To love us well. That's how He loves us. That's how He feels about us. Now, what does that have to do with our relationships? My friends, whatever scope of relationships come to your mind right now, whatever spectrum it may be, you need to understand that if you are a Christian, if you are a follower of Jesus, you are already in a relationship that completely fulfills you, and you need look to no other to do that. Now I say that because so much of the relational garbage that we encounter comes about because we are looking and seeking for things with another person. A child, a spouse, a parent, a sibling, a friend, a neighbor. We are looking and seeking for something with them that we already have with Him that they can't give. Which then leads to all kinds of frustration, all kinds of consternation, and all kinds of hurt. So I think the question begs to be asked, in what ways are we seeking and in what ways are we looking for things with another person that we already have with Christ? Full acceptance. Full approval. The greatest security, knowing you will never be rejected or turned away. Do you really think you'll find that with another person? Only with Christ. Only with Jesus. This One who kisses us on our crooked mouths. Which then frees us to then be able to really love each other. Last thing, the beauty of the bride. We have the sovereignty of the king, we have the wedding of the lamb, and we have the beauty of the bride. When he looks at us, okay, he's placed us, you know how he feels about us, but I mean, how does he see us? How does he see us? Is he just kind of putting up with us? How does he see us? Again, verses 6 through 8, Revelation 19. Hallelujah, the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. What does he see? Well, this is a sight to behold. And if you've read much of the book of Revelation, and if you go back and read chapters 17 and 18, you'll see allusions here to this great prostitute, the uh, Babylon, and there's all the, the, the imagery there. And in great, I'll just put it this way, in great contrast to the prostitute and all her gaudy, luxurious self-indulgence, you see the beauty of the bride. And this is a theme that runs throughout the Scriptures the way she's described here, the way she is dressed here, a theme that you see going back into the Old Testament with the chief priest as he would come into the Holy of Holies in something of his attire. You see it with the description of the angels and the purity and the whiteness and the brilliance. But most especially, you see it with Jesus himself and his glory and how he is described. And there's echoes of that in how the bride is attired and how the bride is dressed here in this wedding. Now, where does she get this wedding garment? Where does it come from? The emphasis is clearly on His provision. Her wedding gown is His wedding gift. Look back with me in a chapter uh, uh, 61 of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 61 is very clear, very clear in terms of how this comes to be hers, these garments. Uh, Isaiah 61, verse 10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for He has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks Himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and a bride adorns herself with her jewels. She is made beautiful. His bride is made beautiful. And is beautiful not just in His sight. Not just to Him, but by Him, through Him, because of Him. She is actually beautiful. In in many respects, it's, it's... Go back if you want to read this in Zechariah chapter 3 where Zechariah has this vision of the, the, the Joshua the high priest who is clothed in these garments of filth. And that's not just mud. And over the course of the vision, the command from heaven comes to remove the garments of filth and to put these beautiful, pure, white garments upon him. And all that is meant to signify what theologians refer to as the imputed righteousness of Jesus, meaning. That he has died the death we deserve to die in our place. But equally so, he has also lived the life we should have lived in our place. And it is completely credited to him. And it is not just some game. We are clothed with the righteousness of Jesus. So when God looks at us, when God looks at you, how does he see you? That's how he sees you clothed with fine linen, bright and pure. The righteous deeds of the saints are the righteous deeds of Jesus given to the saints. That's how He sees you. What does that do to our relationships? Let me take it to one of the most intense, and that is marriage. What does this do to a marriage when the husband and the wife begin to get and continue to get that they are each forgiven sinners? It means as you look at yourself, you understand that you are compelled to humility because you're a forgiven sinner. And as you look to this other person, you are compelled to to see them, to treat them, to love them with patience and compassion and mercy because they too are forgiven sinners. You get that. The degree to which you get that, it will transform that relationship and any other. Any other because of of the source of our beauty. The source of our righteousness. Praise God, we are not clothed in the filth of our rags. But in the beauty of His robes. This is what we speak of when we speak of the transforming love of Jesus. And as we get that right, all other things will in turn fall into place. Now, in closing, let me say one more thing, lest I be misunderstood. When I say, in essence, get first things first, get things in order, and all things will then fall into place, please do not misunderstand me by advocating some sort of self-help, some sort of Get this right, keep this right, and everything will be right. I, I do not in any way mean to imply that follow Jesus, you know, adopt some sort of rudimentary understanding of these things, and you'll get what you really want. No. This is about coming to understand that at the end of the day, Jesus is whom you've really wanted all along. when things begin to fall in place. I've been listening to again and again and again. This beautiful old hymn, Hast Thou Heard Him. I don't believe we've ever sung it here. Let's read you a few lines from it. Hast thou heard Him, seen Him, known Him? Is not thine a captured heart? Chief among ten thousand own Him. Joyful choose the better part. Captivated by His beauty. Worthy tribute. Haste to bring. Let his peerless worth constrain thee. Crown him now unrivaled king. Tis that look that melted Peter. Tis that face that Stephen saw. Tis that heart that wept with Mary can alone from idols draw. To see that love, to know that love, to embrace that love will mean you will want in the end no other. Because no other will compare. No other will do And He becomes truly first. Like the sun and all others' candles. That's what it means when we say, for things to become right between us, we need to know the sovereign of love of Jesus for us. To see that is to see. To live out of that is to live. And to be able to love. Let's pray. Lord, our relationships are a mess. And we would be fools if we didn't admit that. Uh, We have hardly two feet to look before we would come to recognize that. Now, it's we know it's not all because of us. But some of it is. And we know that you intend for that to get our attention, for our need for transformation, to see and embrace this love, to live out of your sovereign love for us with the confidence that you reign, with the joy that we have found, a fountain that will never run dry, the relationship above all that will fulfill, that we found the cleansing we found the forgiveness that we desperately desperately need every one of us we ask that you would help this cause this message this good good news to warm our cold hearts to soften our hardened hearts and to heal our broken hearts and do this oh jesus from the inside out that we would be changed men and women every one of us going forth with Uh, a deep gladness that is growing and showing such that others begin to ask, what's going on? In your name we pray. Amen.